get into our text this morning. Father, we thank you for corporate worship. Worship that was purchased for us by the blood, the cross of your son and by his resurrection from the grave. Father, by your spirit today, may we steward this time of worship through the preaching of the word. May we steward it well for your son's sake. Amen. In the early 90s, a film came out that was essentially about unlikely friendships that formed through, well, the film did not refer to the providence of God, but it was divine providence. For instance, a relationship between this wealthy immigration attorney and a blue-collar African-American tow truck driver. And in one of the scenes, this attorney finds himself in a traffic jam in Los Angeles. And so he tries to work himself out of that traffic jam, and he ends up in a very dangerous and violent part of town during the race riots in Los Angeles. Well, at that point, his Mercedes-Benz stalls. And so he calls for a tow truck driver to, to bail him out. But before the truck arrives, he finds himself surrounded by five troublemakers. Well, just in time, the tow truck driver pulls up, and that driver begins to hook up his Mercedes to the tow truck. But that's when the thugs protest. And so the driver, the tow truck driver, pulls the, the leader of that gang aside. And he gives him a five-sentence introduction to a theology of the fall. And here's what he said to that troublemaker. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. <clears throat> well, the tow truck driver's assessment of the human predicament is spot on. He knows things are supposed to be different. He knows the way things are supposed to be. It should include safe streets for strangers. It should include mutual goodwill and respect for all humankind. Of course, we know that that's not the way things are at all in our culture. Human wrongdoing, or the threat of it, mars every adult's workday. It mars every student's class day. It mars every vacationer's holiday. We know that coming off the heels of Christmas. It mars every marriage's and every family's harmony. It mars every church's unity. 
Cornelius Plantica argues that the best word, and I believe he's correct, to describe what was lost by the fall, what was lost by sin and rebellion, is the word shalom. Translated in our Bibles as peace. Now, if in the fall, the right relationship of humankind to God, to ourselves, to each other, and to the natural world were all fractured, then the restoration of shalom is the mending of all of those relationships. And Israel was redeemed, recognized as a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests, to serve as a tangible witness of what had been lost by sin and the fall in the first Adam. Israel had been redeemed to serve as a witness of what the world would look like when the Lord restored Shalom. Since Israel was providentially, it's a beautiful and remarkable providence, Israel was planted, was located geographically on the only communications link between the super world powers of the ancient world, that is Egypt and Mesopotamia. And so in this position, Israel was to display within their covenant community to the world the, the kind of relationships first to God and to each other that God intended for his image bearers. It's remarkable how that land was situated just for that calling, for that vocation. But that anticipation of restored shalom looks like nonsense with a kingdom divided. And that's exactly what we've seen since David was appointed king over Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2. In fact, it culminated in a long civil war instigated by a man named Abner. As we saw last time over the last weeks, Abner was Saul's right-hand man, his commander-in-chief, and Abner had instigated that. So after Saul had died, he had appointed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, to be king over the other tribes outside of Judah. And it had resulted in this terrible war. And yet we have begun to see, as recently as the first part of chapter 3, kind of a mustard seed expression of the restoration of Shalom. And that brings us to our first point in verses 20 to 23, the restoring of the kingdom of Shalom. Notice with me in verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner. Think about that. Abner has been a thorn in David's side for over a decade, seeking to kill him as Saul's right-hand man. Here, David makes a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. It appears here that Abner is repentant. It may not be perfect repentance, but no one's repentance is perfect. 
So David sent Abner away, and he went in shalom. He went in peace. Notice verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid. It was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. So shalom, peace, is the key word here. It's used three times in consecutive verses. It frames the rest of the chapter. Think about this. This is the spirit-filled Messiah. That's the language used of David. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah who has been filled with the Spirit. 1 Samuel 16. The Spirit-filled Messiah who has held a banquet for a former insurrectionist named Abner who did not deserve that. Now this former, former rebel goes in peace. It's remarkable grace. It, it's glorious. And this is the promise for everyone who comes to the king on the king's terms. No matter what you've done, if you come to the king on the king's terms, you are promised shalom, peace. But in a world that's fallen and broken as ours, there is always going to be warfare on shalom. It should never surprise us when there's warfare on shalom in this broken and fallen world. A world in which things are not the way they're supposed to be. That brings us to the second part of this passage, the vandalism of the kingdom of shalom. Notice in verse 24, Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Now, Joab, as we've seen, is David's nephew, but he's one of his warriors. And we also know that Abner killed his brother Azahel. He said, why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know that all you are doing. Joab, we're going to continue to see this, is the poster child for the person who's always an obstacle to shalom. They're planted in virtually every family, every workplace, every neighborhood, and every church. And, and Joab's anger is ultimately directed at the king. Directed at David. Again, just as the word peace is used numerous times in this passage, so is the word king. Now, anger in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing in a world of lost shalom. In fact, God's anger is the hope of the world. Have you ever thought about that? If God was not angry at sin, there would be no cross. There would be no means of salvation. 
So God's anger is the hope of the world. We would not want to live in a world where the, the one ruling it was incapable of righteous anger. So it's good that the, the one who rules this world is fully capable, in fact, perfectly so, of righteous anger. But because God is righteously angry, we can rest assured that all the shalom that has been lost by sin will be restored. That's our hope. The shalom that was lost by sin will be restored. That means we should be angry too. In a world in which nothing operates as intended, and where evil has more immediate influence than good, and we recognize that, don't we? It would be wrong for us not to be angry. We simply can't look at this broken culture, this broken world, with the eyes of truth, with hearts devoted to what God says is good, what God says is right, and not be angry. That's why shalom can't just come at any cost. We don't compromise the truth for the sake of pseudo-shalom. But let's be clear, though. The Lord's anger is always what Paul Tripp calls big kingdom angry. anger. Big kingdom anger. What do we mean by big kingdom anger? God is always working to right the wrongs. He's always at work righting the wrongs. But we are more like Joab who kind of vacillate and wrestle between big kingdom anger and little kingdom anger. What is the little kingdom? The kingdom of self, self-rule. With little kingdom anger, I am angry at you, not because you have broken God's law. I am angry with you because you have broken my law. Little kingdom anger. Because sin turns us in on ourselves, we tend to be angry, demanding, critical. Do you know hypercritical people? They just criticize everything. There are some things to critique, for sure. But critical spirit's a different thing. It reflects someone who's ruling their small kingdom. And with this kind of rule, we're angry for all the wrong reasons. And unchecked, little kingdom anger inevitably ends up in vigilante behavior. It may be overt vigilante behavior, where you overtly seek to hurt someone. Or it may be something like passive-aggressive behavior. But both expressions of vigilante behavior will inevitably result in culpable shalom vandalism. The vandalism of shalom. And here there are at least three reasons that Joab is vandalizing shalom. 
Three reasons that Joab was opposed to David making peace with Abner. The first reason we see here in verse 25. You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you. Joab did not think it was possible that a person can be changed. After all, Abner was the one who was Saul's henchman. He was the one who had established Ishbosheth as a rival king. Abner was the one who had killed his brother, Azahel. He didn't believe that this so-called repentance was legit. He was very skeptical of that. He didn't seem to realize ultimately, now this is important, that grace is only offered to those who need it, not for those who deserve it. If it was deserved, it wouldn't be grace, it'd be a paycheck. It'd be a wage owed. He didn't understand that shalom and peace is only offered to those who need shalom and peace. That's one reason that he opposed David's securing peace with Abner. The second reason is more implied, but virtually every scholar on this text picks it up. He's likely concerned that Abner would replace him as David's military chief. So likely, envy of position was a motive behind the anger as well. He was envious of Abner. And, and Joab is not far from us. I know he's not far from me. Often our greatest animosity is aimed at those we perceive to be a threat to what we most desire and cherish. Even if it comes in the guise of kingdom pursuits. I love what Del Ralph Davis says here. Though I profess to care only about Jesus' kingship, I fear I am far more concerned about my place in his regime than when the honor of his name. Do you resonate with Davis there? Under the guise of service in the kingdom, I crave all the strokes I can get, even at Jesus' expense. The third reason that Joab was opposed to David making peace with Abner, we see in verses 26 and 27. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. That's going to be a theme. Because this is written clearly to people who were still wondering about David's participation our role in Abner's death. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. 
So there's a third reason he was against David offering peace. There's just some people that don't deserve that. That's Joab's thinking. Especially those who kill my brother. For one, this was a gutless move, though, to murder a man under the guise of peace, under the guise of hospitality. He, he pulls Abner aside like he's going to have a man-to-man conversation with him, and then he, he murders him. It reminds me of a text that we, we looked at a few weeks ago in the book of Jeremiah on Sunday evening. In Jeremiah 9, verse 8, the people are condemned in part for this reason. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. With his mouth, each speaks shalom to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Horrifying, horrifying text. And the spirit of Joab is not far from us. When we put on a shalom face to another person and all the while act as a shalom vandal behind that person's back. It happens in the home. And so a man looks in his wife's eyes and says, I am completely committed to you. Shalom. And all the while, that man goes to his computer screen and pulls up pornography. A shalom vandal. Or a child looks at his or her mom, dad's face. I honor you as my parent. And then behind the parent's back. The child does things that eclipse the glory of God and dishonors his or her parents. And it happens in churches where one person speaks kind words, words of shalom to a person that they rip behind their back. Shalom vandals. Another reason this was a a wicked act is that Abner had killed Azahel in battle. In fact, he warned Azahel, if you'll remember that. He wasn't intending to to kill Azahel. Azahel was David's nephew, and he warned him. But it was a war. This wasn't a war. Joab murdered Abner in cold blood after the king had granted peace to Abner. That shows you how egregious that is as well. Um, Churches filled with people who God has made peace with in the Son. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And all the while, we serve as shalom vandals to those whom the king has made peace with. It's a wicked act on Joab's part. Plus, Joab killed Abner at Hebron. Why is that important? Joshua 20 verse 7 tells us that Hebron was a city of refuge. 
what is a city of refuge? That was where, it was one of those cities where the people under blood guilt would go and would remain safe until they had a fair hearing. And so that was violated. All that said, shalom vandalism is a grievous act, especially considering the calling of the people of God who have peace with God at the expense of God. And it also bears false witness to an accomplishment of the king. The king had accomplished peace for Abner. And now Joab was bearing false witness to what had been secured for Abner. That brings us to the final part of this passage. Retribution on kingdom vandalism. Look at me in verse 28. Afterward, when David heard it, and we don't know how long that was, but sometime, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ezahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. And so again, this is an apologetic in part. We just we can't lose the historicity of this text because evidently there would be some later from the northern tribes who were devoted to Abner, devoted to Saul, who would have thought, and remember, leaders are always falsely accused of things. Always. It's just it's it's the way it's always been. If you go into leadership, that's something that that's a badge you wear. David would be falsely accused in being complicit in Abner's death. And so the writer here is making clear David had nothing to do with this. In fact, David calls on God to judge Joab, his nephew. In fact, uh, in this mention of the calamities that David calls upon Joab, these litany of curses are essentially a summation of the curses that fall on people who murder others in cold blood. You see it from instance Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. In other words, he's calling the covenant curses down on Joab. Joab is under the covenant curse for having broken covenant as one of God's people. And, and David, for his part, does four things here with respect to burying Abner that drives home his complete innocence in Abner's death, as well as David's commitment to Shalom. The first thing we see in verse 31, it's very interesting. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn, 
This was an outward expression of repentance. Joab wasn't repentant, but David was going to dress him up to make him, ironically, appear repentant. Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. This is essentially a public humiliation of Joab and an acknowledgement that Abner was not the king's enemy. Now, what's remarkable, for the first time in Scripture, in the very midst of this procession, we, we read that David is now King David. Notice that, verse 31. First place. He was appointed as king over Judah in 2 Samuel 2. But here for the first time we read in Scripture, King David. Isn't that beautiful? Because we know that it's going to be through this king, through his line, through his offspring, that the great king will come. So King David is seen here for the first time in the midst of this procession. It's beautiful and glorious. And to reinforce David's new identity, the, Dave, uh, the writer here is going to refer to David as the king five more times in this passage. The king is being recognized by the entire nation at this point. Ironically, Abner did bring about what he said he was going to bring about. He was going to let all the tribes know David was king. But it's going to come through his death. It's going to come through Abner's death that this occurs. The second thing David does here is, has to do with where he buries Abner. Notice in verse 32. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. Now why does that matter? We've already seen... Hebron was where all the patriarchs were buried. All of them buried right there in, in, in Hebron. Hebron was the only plot of land that Abraham actually possessed in his life. It was kind of like a, a prototype. It, it was like a, just a, a sample, a down payment of what he had been promised. His family had been promised. So Hebron was a very important place. It would be like being buried at Arlington today, the Arlington Cemetery. But I want you to think about this. Maybe you've thought about this. Doesn't it seem a bit over the top that David is grieving like this? Notice again, he wept and the people wept. This is a man, Abner, who has sought to do David harm for over a decade. When David was established, erected as king over Judah, Abner erected Ishbosheth as king over the other tribes, reigning on David's parade, and then causing a civil war, causing untold bloodshed. Here was a man who had killed his nephew in cold blood. Doesn't it seem a bit over the top that David is weeping over this man? But such is the nature of Shalom. Such is the nature of king-mediated shalom. Restored shalom changes everything. Changes everything. 
it changes, first of all, our status with the king. At one time, we're at enmity with the king. Now, shalom is restored, and our status has changed before the king. It also changes our relationship with each other. We're now people of shalom. That's who we are. It's not something we're aspiring to be. It's something who we are. We're people of peace, people of shalom. And it also changes our relationship with those who have hurt us so deeply. We see it here. In David's way is antithetical to the natural way that we deal with conflict, isn't it? There are people who hurt us so severely that we will refuse to ever offer them peace and restoration. Our natural way, my natural way, is to vandalize Shalom. That's just the, that's the way of the natural man. It's the way of the flesh. But the way of the kingdom promotes Shalom. Indeed, right in the midst of all of the chaos, chaos caused by Abner, chaos caused by Joab, the Lord is establishing a forerunner of the Messiah. That's what he's doing. A, a Messiah whose throne will be completely unlike that of all the other kingdoms of the world. It will be a peaceable kingdom. And that's why David is not, that's why David is just the forerunner and not the ultimate king, not the ultimate Messiah. Why? Because as we're going to continue to see with David, his desire for peace was wrought with impediments. For one, his own sin, his own lack of practical peace in his life. His finitude and his fallibility that could not overcome the impediments that we have in a broken world. Impediments that push against shalom. For one, sin and alienation within the human heart. David was too finite and fallible to overcome the sin and alienation in the human heart. The Apostle Paul, contemplating on that sin and alienation in Romans 3, says this of all of humanity. He's not just talking about a special class of sinner. He's not just talking about uh, outright pagans. He says there's none righteous. No, not one. That's our natural state. He goes on and says... These unrighteous ones, referring to us, their feet are swift to shed blood. May not be literal blood, metaphorical blood, but our feet are swift to shed blood. In our path is ruin and misery, the way of peace. They have not known. That's the natural way. How can a mere man like David overcome that? A second impediment to shalom from David's perspective as a byproduct of sin reigning 
there are also ongoing grudges and past grievances that fuel ongoing alienation with people. I mean, think about this. Abner, for over a decade, had participated in wreaking havoc on David and wreaking havoc on David's people, on David's family, like Joab, Azahel. And that had created an alienation that could never be overcome by a mere person. Third reason for this insurmountable impediment was competing agendas. Joab, he had his agenda, and he thought little of the king's agenda. I don't care if the king has offered Abner peace. I refuse that. Joab had his agenda. And this same discord appears throughout church history with the people of God. Think about the disciples, even the night of the cross, the night before the cross, at the Lord's Supper. What are they doing? They're arguing about their place in the kingdom. They got their little kingdom that they're concerned about. Competing agendas. And such is the plight of sinners. And, and this can lead us to despair. I mean, it really can. That, that, that there could ever really be peace. That's why people leave churches. I don't think it's right. I know it's not right. It, it, it's an unfortunate deduction because of what they've seen in churches that can lead people to despair that could, there could ever be peace. How can there be real peace? How can there be real shalom when it's so far into our natural selves? Of course, the answer is not found in a mere man such as David. We, we need someone who not only aspires for shalom, we need someone who can bring it. We need a prince of peace. That's what we need. A prince of peace. And this brings us back to the beginning. David doesn't perfectly handle Joab. He doesn't perfectly handle the one who vandalizes Shalom. Why? Because Joab deserved the death penalty immediately. He'll eventually get it. He's going to get it with Solomon. But he doesn't receive that death penalty immediately. But he will. Because, this is important, shalom vandals are always dealt with in time. Always dealt with. But for now, he's allowed to persist in his shalom vandalizing ways. We're going to see it later on in the text. But when the true Davidic king comes, and he has, he will deal with shalom vandals perfectly. Perfectly. He will either deal with shalom vandals as a lion or a lamb. As a lion, he's returning back and all unrepentant shalom vandals will be judged accordingly. But in the meantime... What do we celebrate at Christmas? The first advent of the Lamb. 
And, and as the lamb, he came as our substitute. In everything he ever did as our substitute, in human flesh, every way he responded to people, to his enemies, was as shalom incarnate. Peace incarnate. Peace in the flesh. No one could look at him and say of him, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Not one moment. In fact, one of the remarkable things about the Gospels is where enemies to Jesus are affirming his innocence, his blamelessness. But then this Prince of Shalom did something that no one could ever, ever envision. He made peace for Joab's like us by the blood of his cross. He was judged for shalom vandals. He satisfied God's wrath on every shalom vandal who would trust in, in him. That's why Paul can say, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And with atonement achieved, to Telestai, it is finished. The Prince of Peace rises from the grave, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and sends the Holy Spirit to overwhelm the spirit of enmity and strife that's so natural to us. That's what the Spirit comes to do, to overwhelm our rebellious spirits. And that's why Galatians 5, Paul tells us, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And now as bearers of that peace, as recipients of that peace, we are given a new agenda to be a compelling community of shalom. That's our agenda. That's our calling. It's not about my role, my agenda within this community. It's bigger than me. It's about being a community of shalom. And that's why the New Testament epistles consistently call Jesus' church to pursue peace. Peace has been secured, for sure. He himself is our peace. We are the people of that peace. But peace also has to be appropriated by the Spirit. That's why Paul will say, for instance, in Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We have it. We've experienced it. We're the people of peace. But now you have to pursue what you are. It's the already but the not yet. In other words, one of the great defenses of the gospel to the world is that former Joabs like me, former Joabs like you, prone to bitterness, prone to vindictive and vigilante behavior, 
prone to shalom vandalism are by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our Lord made people of shalom the way things are supposed to be. And that's one of the great benefits of the table, the Lord's Supper. It, it, it reorients us back to who we are. It, it reorients us back to what has been accomplished for us in the Prince of Peace. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we, we want you to participate with us upon a couple of conditions. This table's not for everyone. It's for those who've experienced that peace, for those who've come to realize, I'm a sinner, I deserve judgment, and God in His wisdom and grace and mercy has provided, made provision for my sin in His Son, who took my judgment in my place. And you are a baptized believer, a member in good standing of a like-minded church that believes that gospel. But before we partake, let, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to partake rightly the table.